How has vitiligo been recorded and treated throughout the ages? How do you perform many punch grafting in vitiligo? Welcome to the EADV podcast. In today's episode of the EADV podcast, Dr. Sarah Walsh is joined by Professor Kushik Lahiri, Professor and Senior Consultant Dermatologist of the Apollo Multi-Specialty Hospital in Calcutta, India. Together they delve into the fine art of mini-grafting in vitiligo. They discuss how this condition has been recorded and treated throughout history and discuss the impact it has on a patient's quality of life. They also talk about the assessment criteria for patient selection and the expected longevity of the procedure. But before we get into that... Applying for EADV membership allows you to become part of a vibrant international community of professionals and gives you access to a variety of benefits and tools to deepen your knowledge while remaining up to date in your latest findings in your specialty. You're just two steps away from becoming an EADV member. Apply today. Visit EADV.org if you wish to learn more. Join Dr. Sarah Walsh and Professor Lahiri as they share clinical tips and lessons learnt over the past 30 years of mini punch grafting in vitiligo and to learn more about this cutting edge treatment option. Enjoy. Hello and welcome to this edition of the EADV podcast. Uh, my name is Sarah Walsh. I'm a dermatology consultant working at King's College Hospital in London. And it's a great pleasure and privilege for me uh, to be joined today by um, Professor Koshik Lahiri. Uh, Koshik is a professor and academic at the Apollo Hospital's Education and Research Foundation and also senior consultant dermatologist at the Apollo Multi-Specialty Hospital in Kolkata. Um, he's got a number of important clinical academic positions, but also he's the director of the International Society of Dermatology and is the president-elect of the Indian Association of Dermatology, Venereology and Leprology. His major clinical interest in recent years has been in the domain of vitiligo, and uh, he has made some significant uh, publications in this domain. But as I was reading your biography, I thought it would be useful for our listeners, um, Professor Lahiri, to hear a little bit about your training um, and your background and what led you to the clinical field you are working in today. Over to you. Thank you. Thank you, Dr. Walsh. Uh, it's really an honor for me to be invited as a guest speaker in EADV podcast with you as the host. Uh, I was trained in Bodon Medical College. Uh, Bodon is actually, uh, was a princely state in the eastern part of India, about 63 miles from the state capital of Kolkata, or Calcutta as we used to call her then. And uh, you may be interested to know that my father was also a dermatologist, and he was instrumental in starting a couple of departments of dermatologists in two different medical colleges of Bengal, I graduated in medicine in 1989. That was uh, about three decades and uh, 33 years back. And from Baudouin and after the mandatory internship of one year in, in different departments like internal medicine, psychiatry and dermatology, I finally cracked the postgraduate entrance examination and shifted to the state capital of Calcutta. And uh, my Institute was the Institute of Postgraduate Medical Education and Research, that is IPGMU, that happens to be one of the premier medical teaching institutes of a country. And you may be interested to know that the legendary Sir Ronald Ross worked in this hospital. Those days it was called the Presidency General Hospital and became the first British Nobel Laureate 
1902 for his path-breaking walks on the transmission of malaria. And uh, my dissertation topic, no points for guessing, was on mini grafting in vitiligo. <laughs> So you were, you were carrying on a fine tradition in dermatology, and that, that's fascinating to hear about the, the, the Nobel Prize winner. And well, you, you certainly went on to, to build on that um, MD thesis. And I have to say, I thoroughly enjoyed reading your 2009 overview article in the Indian Journal of Dermatology on that uh, concept of mini grafting. It's entitled The Evolution and Evaluation of Autologous Mini Punch Grafting in Vitiligo. And one of the things I loved about it, um, particularly as someone not working directly in this subspecialty area, um, was that you gave this fantastic um, historical overview at the beginning of the article to contextualise the problem of vitiligo. And I wonder if you could just outline for our listeners some examples of how vitiligo has been significant and how it has been recorded through the ages. Vitiligo indeed is uh, the most significant form of cutaneous acromia, as we all know as dermatologists. It is an elusive, if not enigmatic problem down the ages. And in all the ancient civilizations and religions, there is some reference to vitiligo. In our ancient text, that is Rig Veda, it was referred to as Kailas, and that means a white spotted deer. And uh, even in ancient Persia, that is 2200 BC, at the time of Assyrian, in the Tarak Atebel Iran, it was also, also mentioned. And in, in Ebus Papyrus, 1550 BC, it was mentioned. Unfortunately, Dr. Welsh, uh, some of the prominent ancient texts, the disease was actually confused with leprosy and also some other skin disease like psoriasis. In our ancient texts, like in Atharva Veda, that was 1400 BC, it was mentioned as Shweta Kushta. And this Shweta, it is a Sanskrit term. It means white. And Kushta means leprosy. So there you go. So from the very beginning, people started confusing with leprosy. Even in Shinto prayers, they have uh, the mention and in, in, in many ancient texts, uh, uh, it was mentioned and it was confused, unfortunately. Well, yes, categorization of disease ca ca can be can be tricky. And I suppose what I loved about this is it showed that your surgical intervention is really a very modern solution for a very ancient problem. And uh, I, I, regarding your current clinical work and the process of mini grafting, I wonder, when I was reading through your body of literature, I was wondering about patient selection. And presumably when you meet patients, there are both uh, clinical elements that you consider, uh, such as disease extent, and also uh, psychological elements. And um, so, for example, the degree of impairment of quality of life. And I wonder if you could give us a comment on how those two factors influence your, your patient selection. Uh, Dr. Welsh, uh, before coming to that topic, I think uh, as we were discussing the evolution of the concept of vitiligo, it will be interesting for our listeners to know about the evolution of vitiligo surgery a little. So uh, that will also be interesting because in 1804, about 220 years back, it was Baronio who first did the experimental skin grafting. And one 
surgeon, Dr. Norman Warrentreich, in 1972, first reported the autograft repigmentation in, in human. And he turned uh, a, a person, a lady of, of dark complexion with long-standing leukoderma, which resulted from following a chemical barn many years back when she was treated with a home remedy that included a copper penny dipped in vinegar with a tinea infection on her cheek. And Orentrike tried to treat that with one or two millimeter skin autograft. And that was the first time in our history the pigment spray phenomenon was noticed. Later on, there are many, many other workers and one of the global giant and the father of vitiligo surgery considered to be Dr. Rafael Falabella, my guru, my mentor in this regard. Now coming to your question of how do we actually select the case before embarking any surgical intervention of vitiligo, a proper assessment of the stability status is of paramount importance because it is it is not a fun if you if you uh, uh, like this uh, the donor area is depigmented. The patient is active uh, as per the disease process, and the donor area gets depigmented. It's very difficult to face the patient and the patient's family. So the concept was discussed in detail in many literature. What we do very simply, we ask the patient from the history, any lack of progression of old lesions and an absence of development of any new lesion with a specific period that is six months to two years. You know about the Kobner's phenomenon either from the history or experimentally induced Kobner or as Dr. Rafael Falabella uh, he suggested, and we, we developed on that, that is test grafting. We do uh, one or two grafts placed on the central of the lesion. And if the grafts are spreading pigment, then we consider this as a positive test graft. And then we go for further sessions of grafting. So the timing is really critical and making sure that the disease is not in a progressive phase. That's that's very interesting. Um, and it, it sounds like it's quite, is it a time consuming procedure to perform? And um, can you give the listeners an idea of how long, for example, it would take to treat the area the size of, say, the palm of the hand? Actually, you need to build up a team of trained nurses or assistants or juniors. I will take not more than 20 minutes. The smaller lesions I'll finish in five to 10 minutes. So that's all because uh, I have uh, several people working on, on different uh, places of the body. Uh, someone is working on the donor area, uh, taking up the uh, donor grafts and someone is preparing the recipient area, uh, uh, giving the infiltration of anesthesia and uh, the recipient chambers. So simultaneously we can work and that speeds up the procedure directly can take the graph from the donor area placed directly in the recipient area. I do not use any glue at all. It's a very fast, very, very easy procedure and it gives a wonderful result. Well, that was that was clear, certainly from the photographs I saw in your published papers. So it sounds like you've got it down to uh, what we call in English a, a fine art and uh, speeding through the, the, the graphs. And can you tell me, do you get much um, post-operative bleeding when you're operating on sites like the vermilion lip, which of course, as we know, is quite vascular? Actually, Dr. Welsh, uh, uh, one of the best area to graft is on the lips and also on the upper eyelid. Uh, we have one of the largest series of grafting on the lips and uh, uh, we use about uh, 
lignocaine uh, and mixed with adrenaline, that is one in 80,000 dilation to enhance the duration of the anesthesia, to um, uh, like uh, decrease the toxicity, to achieve the vasoconstriction, and to provide a bloodless field. Yes, so that was the magic. We definitely use adrenaline with lignocaine. Uh, I, I think I missed about the quality of life part. And yes, the quality of life in vitiligo, uh, it is it is horrendous in, in most of our patient. And that is definitely one aspect when, when suppose uh, somebody is having a vitiligo patch, a lovely teenager girl, a boy, having a patch of vitiligo, the segmental vitiligo on her cheek. So that can cause a, uh, like a really bad psychosocial effect, especially in the darker skin of our country. Any visible skin disorder can limit any healthy psychosocial engagement of an individual. He's shy, he's always introvert. So he can change his or her life with the touch of uh, this small instrument that is the punch. And do you routinely measure um, pre and post operative? quality of life not really it, it is not always needed and it's not always possible also honestly in our busy practice schedule but yes in in teaching hospitals for doing the research purpose for any any uh, big papers uh, definitely these uh, the dermatologic uh, quality of life index that is dlqi is is needed yeah, and I, I guess we might infer uh, from certainly from the photographs that quality of life you would expect to to improve after this intervention. And I, I wonder, could you give us a comment um, on the typical longevity of the results following uh, the mini grafting? Uh, well, there is a no rule of thumb. Uh, it, it depends in segmental vitiligo. The result is good and long lasting because as per the definition, as per the mechanism, the segmental vitiligo is, is, should not be that active, but not so in non-segmental vitiligo. And uh, like a non-segmental vitiligo, it is again an enigma. It can anytime it can become active. And I have seen all kinds of combination like uh, in, in stable vitiligo, I did the grafting. After five years, the graft started depigmenting or even in, in active vitiligo, uh, the pressure from the family, suppose there is a, as a uh, like a marriage in the, in, the, in the family or even that girl is getting married, we had to do the grafting even in active patient and it was the showing excellent result. So we are lucky and the patient is lucky. And the typical longevity any time between two to 10 years is, is uh, considered as a success. Fantastic. So really quite impressive results. And is there any adjuvant um, therapy that one can give to improve or enhance the likely longevity? You mentioned certainly in one of your publications that phototherapy is a very good post-operative treatment and so perhaps a comment on that would be useful. And maybe also whether there's a role for things like topical steroids and topical tacrolimus. That's an excellent question, Dr. Welsh. Uh, topical calcineurin inhibitors are my first choice and my favorites. And definitely not topical steroid. 
for its potential chance of being misused, especially in a country like ours, where there is, these are all available over the counter. You'll be shocked to know the most potent topical steroid can be uh, uh, like uh, purchased over the counter. And the law enforcement may not be as what we wish it to be. So my uh, first choice is definitely topical calcineurin inhibitor and exposing uh, uh, to narrowband UVB. Uh, we have completely stopped uh, UVA uh, until uh, unless the uh, is having vitiligo lesion on the palms and soles where you need the long waves to hit that area. Otherwise, narrowband UVB and topical calcineurin inhibitors are wonderful actually. Fantastic. That's a great, great clinical tip. And clearly, uh, therapeutics um, within this domain are, you know, advancing all the time. And we, we've certainly seen that there's a role for JAK inhibitors in analogous autoimmune conditions like alopecia areata. But there is certainly some growing literature that the JAK inhibitors may also be useful um, uh, in, as a treatment option in vitiligo. And I wondered if you had a, a comment on that, whether you had any clinical experience of it and how you see JAK inhibitors evolving um, in a treatment role in this disease. Huh, that's an exciting horizon we all are looking into, aren't we? Just a couple of months back, I think FDA has approved ruxolitinib cream for the treatment of non-segmental vitiligo in adult and pediatric patient over two, 12 years. Uh, I was reading one interesting article, I, I'm sure you have gone through this, that is uh, uh, the, the Frontiers in Immunology, it was, it was published very recently in, in last week of August, where they have actually uh, given a wonderful uh, uh, like a insight in, in how uh, the Jack Inivitus can change our way of treatment in vitiligo. And there's some, we all know about the tofacitinib and ruxolitinib, but there's some tongue twister uh, of the other Jack Inivitus, like uh, the one one is uh, uh, like a ritlectitinib. I'm sure uh, you have uh, heard about that. Or uh, there is one that is brepoxitinib uh, or sedulacitinib. And the funniest name is if I dance sitinib. That is <laughs> so. About, Certainly, there, there's no shortage of, of tongue twisters in the naming of these new uh, new medications. I, I use a, a lot of the stofacitinib five milligram once or twice, and the results I can share. We are working on a big series, and it will be published. These are exciting. Ruxolitinib I have not used. These are actually topical. Uh, the 1.5% phosphate cream, some results are very, very interesting. And this got the approval. The others, the baricitinib, and uh, if I dance itinib, that is reflexitinib. These are all like uh, some are oral medicines, some are topicals. Uh, these are very, very interesting uh, horizon we are looking into. Yeah, it's very, well, it's fascinating to hear of your experience with tofacitinib. Um, so, Professor Lahiri, it has been such a privilege to talk to you, and I have learned a huge amount, as I'm sure our listeners have. And um, you shared with me before we started recording that your son is starting medical school. So I hope that in the future he can continue this important seam of work uh, that you've begun so successfully. So thank you to you and thank you to our listeners for tuning in to listen to this episode of the EADV podcast. Thank you. Thank you, Dr. Welsh. 
and and thank you EADV for giving me the opportunity to be here. Thank you very much. Save the date for our upcoming symposium hosted in Seville, Spain, 18th to the 20th of May, 2023. Discover the latest scientific updates across acne, pigmentary disorders, atopic dermatitis, pediatric dermatology, and more. The symposium format offers you the chance to meet leaders in your specialty from all over Europe and beyond. Stay tuned for more. Thank you for listening and until the next episode, take care of your skin.